0: This podcast contains depictions of violence and abuse perpetrated against children, including sexual abuse and rape, as well as suicide, institutional racism, intergenerational trauma and a bit of swearing. But there's also friendship, love, inappropriate puns and general skullduggery. The survivors of Lake Alice want their stories to be heard. But do take care when and where you listen.
1: Stuff Podcasts. Previously, on the
2: lake. It's time to turn around and show and tell, I think.
3: Absolutely, I was institutionalised. There's no question about it. But Lake Alice had become a known torture to me.
2: I regret doing it. I still have trouble thinking about the fact that I did use that machine.
4: I mean, that's a criminal offence. It's
2: assault. Right so I don't know what the police are doing. It's unspeakable. It was unspeakable. And yet people knew Aaron, and they did nothing at the time.
1: From Pop sock Media and Stuff, this is The Lake, a podcast about the children of Lake Alice. I'm Aaron Smale, and this is Episode 6, One Flew Over the Lake. <laughs> Memory is a fickle thing. It's not static or reliable. It can be open to suggestion. Trauma makes things even more complicated, bearing memories or warping them, or making them reappear without warning, sending an adult straight back into the body of a terrified or lost child. We know the kids at Lake Ellis receive shock treatment via an ECT machine. One of the main side effects of ECT is short-term memory loss even when it's done properly under anaesthetic and with painless electrical currents but when you increase the charge mess around with the position of electrodes or give people shocks more often you can start to impact long-term memory so the kids of Lake Ellis have a complicated relationship with their memories fortunately Memories aren't the only source of information about Lake Ellis. There's also documents. These records can corroborate uncertain memories and prove that people aren't crazy. They're telling the truth. I first started covering state abuse in Aotearoa as a journalist five years ago, and a couple of years ago the story got too big. So I started a PhD. I had fantasies of some pristine stack of paper somewhere in the bowels of National Archives, just waiting for me to come along and discover them. Well, that's not what happened. It turns out that records can be really hard to find. Many are incomplete or written by unreliable witnesses with vested interests. Some files were actively destroyed, and a good number of documents are controlled by the government. So the same institution responsible for the abuse can simply decide it doesn't want to give them to you. I found a letter recently from the guy who was the superintendent of Lake Ellis in the 1970s, Sidney Pugmire. He'd written to another staff member years after the adolescent unit had closed. Pugmire had tried to refuse a former patient access to their file, but the privacy commissioner had told him to release them. Pugmire wasn't happy. Saying
3: The world has changed since then and the laws have changed and no one would dream of writing the plain truth in any document because it might easily cost them heavy damages.
1: Sometimes I've struck gold, finding solid evidence in a document confirming what a survivor has told me. And sometimes those files have come from the state's official records. But they're often in the last place you'd expect on the North Shore in Auckland, there's a small garage with no space left for a car. Instead, this garage houses documents. Dozens of boxes line the walls full of statements, correspondence, newspaper clippings, OAAs, thousands and thousands of records, which have been hoarded over decades by a character named Victor Boyd.
5: Technically challenged. <laughs> Not on an email, but on a, um, uh, an interview.
1: Victor Boyd has been a huge advocate for the survivors of Lake Ellis and integral to keeping the survivors' stories in the public arena along with another guy, Mike Ferris. Oh, and by the way, both of them are Scientologists. In order to understand how a couple of Scientologists came to be wrapped up in Lake Ellis, we need to explain a little background. The Church of Scientology was founded by L. Ron Hubbard in 1954 and since the very start the relationship between Scientology and psychiatry has been hostile. In an article published in 1956 Hubbard wrote, We discover psychoanalysis to have been superseded by tyrannous sadism practiced by unprincipled men themselves evidently in the last stages of dementia,
6: merely sawing out patients brains, shocking them with murderous drugs
1: Striking them with high voltages, placing them in restraints, and generally conducting themselves much as their patients would, were they given the chance. By 1969, 13 years later, Hubbard had committed his church to the goal of eradicating psychiatric practices, especially the use of pharmaceuticals, in order to replace them with Scientology's own techniques. That same year, the Church of Scientology set up a subsidiary named CCHR, the Citizens Commission on Human Rights, whose whole purpose was to expose and eradicate psychiatry. CCHR's website has a full catalogue of documentaries they've made with titles like Psychiatry, An Industry of Death and Therapy or Torture, The Truth About Electroshock. Psychiatrists say that disorders like PTSD can't be cured.
4: Instead, they claim... They need to be managed with drugs for the rest of your
2: life.
7: They gave me 28 shock treatments and literally raped my soul. Does ECT
0: cause death? Yes, it does.
4: There is hope, and it doesn't
6: involve psychiatric treatment.
1: Now, views on Scientology tend to be quite polarised. Some see it as a malign and potentially dangerous organisation... While others are happy to write it off, it's just another bonkers cult. Regardless, CCHR has been a huge help to many of the people who were abused and tortured at Lake Ellis as children, and they've created a hugely valuable paper trail.
8: Scientology, well, that's the religious philosophy that believes that the problems of the mind are the the past memories and pictures that we all hold, the painful ones, that cause the mental affliction and that drugs and ECT and the rest of it is just nothing more than um, a kind of mental and spiritual abuse.
1: That's Mike Ferris. He's the head of the New Zealand branch of CCHR, which opened in 1975.
8: And they conducted their first tours of psychiatric hospitals in
1: 1976. Keen CCHR volunteers took to the road to interview people who'd been in New Zealand's institutions, armed with pen and paper. At that
5: time... I had a car,
1: I was single, and I had money. <laughs> Victor Boyd was brought up in the Church of Scientology. He was in his mid-twenties, living in Fanganui, when he started collecting stories from survivors of Lake Alice.
5: I could get out on the road, this is what I did. I made phone calls in the red phone boxes, like you see on Doctor Who. It was just piecemeal,
1: you know. Each person he spoke to gave him more names of other kids who'd been there. So
5: I travelled to Wellington, Danneverk, places like that on the weekends, and that to interview people and get these
1: stories. And most of them had only just come out recently, so the information was fresh.
5: I thought young guys telling me these things sounds pretty true, could be true, because you get one, two, three, four, okay, not just isolated now.
1: Before long, he was swamped with evidence of dodgy psychiatric practice. The whole idea
5: that you know, kids were getting shock treatment against their will and it was harmful you know, in New Zealand because these sorts of things happen overseas, they don't happen here. I'm more than just curious now as to what's going on. Uh, I just kept on asking
1: questions and getting these statements. This went on for years, and at some stage in the early 2000s, CCHR ran into this guy. Well, I made you smile
4: so I already won. I got the <laughs> first laugh. I do that on the boat every day. It's like clown escape from the
1: circus. This is Paul Zenfeld. He's a bit of a character, as you can hear. And in case you missed it, he's a skipper on a boat. Paul's never been media shy. And if you've only ever heard one Lake Ellis survivor talking, it's probably been him. And CCHR have been with him most of the way.
4: Well, I'll tell you something. They've never pushed God onto me or church or Scientology. Nothing. They've been just 100% caring.
7: So, for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Paul was admitted to Lake Ellis by his mother in March 1974 when he was 13, and he never forgave her for it. He spent two years at Lake Ellis in five separate stints, Paul was a chronic bedwetter, which head psychiatrist Dr Selwyn Legs thought was psychological and best solved by aversion therapy. There was
4: not many things that he did say, but it was, we're going to teach a lesson for wetting the bed. We're going to change the way of thinking.
1: It didn't work, though, and Paul found out later that the bedwetting was actually a medical issue. During his time at Lake Alice, Paul was given Peraldehyde injections and shocks as punishment a lot for things like throwing an apple or trying to suck water up a vacuum cleaner, pillow fighting, and running away. At various times, Paul was shocked on the head, knees, and testicles.
4: Every Friday, there was a group in the morning. It's like going to an AA meeting, I I guess. You can either talk or you can't, or you don't want to. And then trying to dig information out of you, well, I, I just, because I was stubborn, I didn't talk, so... So they dragged me upstairs, and it was my first session at ECT. So, it was
2: horrible.
1: When he was 15, Paul got let out for good. Eventually he went to Australia to start afresh, but he got into trouble and was deported. Back in New Zealand, he stayed at a Salvation Army emergency accommodation, and they found him a job packing fish with Sea Lord.
4: I kept um, asking, where does all this fish come from? to one of the crew. Then I told the skipper, and the skipper come and told my boss what I was working for, I want him. Good, strong, young, working fella. I was with him for three and a half years. That was the start of my fishing career, and forget about what happened to Lake Alice.
1: These days, Paul takes people out fishing on chartered boats. He dealt with what happened to him by getting on with things and nearly managed to put the institution behind him. He had a couple of kids, and he was doing okay in the real world. Then one day, in 2001, he was watching the news. A story came on about a class action suit where Lake Alice survivors were claiming compensation from the government.
4: And I rang Grant Cameron because I was hearing it on the news. They hadn't been paid out, but they're going to be paid out. I wasn't thinking of the money. I was just, well, I should be part of that. Paul wanted in. But I was too late for the first round.
1: So he joined a second round of claimants. Somewhere along the way... Paul found out that people in the first group had to pay up to $40,000 in legal fees. That's why so many had ended up with so little. Paul wasn't having it, so he took the government to court. They
4: wanted me to just go away and shut up and drop the charges that I had in court.
1: But the Crown lost the case, and Paul won back his legal fees. I
4: achieved what I wanted to do, and that was prove a point.
1: On the day of this interview, Paul is dressed in a suit. He shows me a CV he's put together, which lists every action he's ever taken regarding Lake Alice.
4: Every action that I've done in my little wins throughout, they have all been warned, and they didn't heed my warning. And behind me, there's millions of dollars worth of damage that they're paying for, and I hope they realise they can't go on.
1: It's got to stop. At this point in the story, we need to bring someone else back You might remember Kevin Banks. He's the kid who was booted out of Lake Ellis to work in the cigarette factory and ended up homeless, taken in by a bus driver. Kevin made complaints with the police and the medical council, but nothing really happened. Kevin moved on, got married and had a couple of kids, but Lake Ellis tends to follow you around. In the late 90s, Kevin was at home in Melbourne, watching TV with his wife Jennifer, when a documentary came on. About the Russians using aversion therapy on prisoners.
2: And then once I saw this thing on TV, I thought, fuck it, I've got to do something about this. I've got to, do, I can't just let this go.
1: Kevin decided it was time to confront Dr. Selwyn Lex. So he set about tracking him down.
2: I, I rang America, I rang England, I rang everywhere practically to try and find out if he was working there. I rang up Lake Alice Hospital, it was still opened at that time. He said to leave Salmon Leaks alone. He'd been hounded enough, and I just said, "I want to know where he is. That's all. I'm not going to touch him. I just want to know where he is."
1: In the end, Kevin found him by picking up the phone book at his home in Melbourne.
2: And of course, Doctor Salmon Leaks was residing in Cheltenham, and I was staying just a suburb away from him. So it was a stone's throw away, practically. I'd been around the corner from him for quite some time, which was the last place that I thought there would be.
1: And Dr. Legs was still practising as a psychiatrist. So Kevin went to see him, determined to confront his demons and rebuild some confidence. Remember, Kevin had been at Lake Ellis for a long time. By the time he was booted out, he was fully institutionalised. Years later, face to face with his tormentor, Kevin felt his resolve crumbling and it didn't take long for Legs to turn the tables and reassert the old doctor-patient relationship. Instead of a confession from Lex, Kevin walked away with a fresh diagnosis and a prescription for psychiatric drugs. He tried to put me on Rohypnol,
2: which is a drug that I found out later on was a date rape drug.
1: Rohypnol is about 10 times stronger than Valium. And
2: I did take them for a while, and then I became addicted to them very fast. They made me feel invincible.
1: Kevin's mission to take Lex down was temporarily halted, but eventually his resolve returned.
2: After I'd found him um, and started seeing him for a little bit, I started seeing that this guy hadn't changed at all. And it was just very much, he said he wouldn't do things that he used to do again, but I could still see the same person in him, and then I decided uh, I'm going to do something about him.
1: You might be wondering how Lex had been able to set up in Australia after everything that had happened back in New Zealand. But Australia probably didn't know anything about it. There was no Google, so it's unlikely they saw any New Zealand news stories. Lex had no criminal convictions. The New Zealand Medical Council wasn't in a hurry to investigate Dr. Lex. Instead, we now know they actually gave Lex a certificate of good standing. In 1999, when the lawsuit against the government was happening... Leeks was deregistered back in New Zealand, and the Australian media started to poke around. But still nothing happened. Dr Leeks kept on practising, and Kevin wanted to change that.
2: All along, what I was really doing is, is trying to catch him out. Just trying to catch him out and put him before another board. Have him deregistered. He, he cannot stay a doctor after what he's done.
1: And this is when Kevin and the skipper Paul Zenfield decided to team up and take Dr Leeks down. So we both made phone
4: calls to the Victoria Medical Board to find out who the hell Dr Lex was working for and a record's income. So I made three phone calls, I think Kevin made two. And this was over a period of like six months. And I said, how can you assure that the new Australian people are safe from a monster like that after
1: what he's done in Lake Alice? And he's right, they weren't safe at all. This is where the picture of Dr Legs as just a bad doctor starts to unravel. Because some of Legs' colleagues in Australia had grown uneasy about his behaviour towards women. In 1979, an Australian woman, Kathy Alexander, was having issues with her oldest child, who was four. He wasn't responding to her and recoiled from touch. She was a solo parent who also had a newborn to look after, and she needed answers. A speech therapist told Cathy about this child psychiatrist named Dr. Selwyn Leakes.
7: She told me that she had met this genius of a man who had practiced in New Zealand and had had remarkable success with children like my son.
1: Cathy's initial reaction to Leakes was pretty similar to what we've heard from other women. She thought he was a creep but she persevered for her son. After three sessions, Lex told Cathy he wanted a meeting without her son present. She thought it was strange, but she agreed. Creepy
7: or not, I wanted to keep that appointment in case he did have some answers for me.
1: At the first consultation, Cathy told Lex all about her own psychological history of depression, anxiety, and surviving childhood abuse. Dr. Lex spoke to Kathy about trust. He asked her to sit on his knee. Kathy was deeply uncomfortable, but she did it anyway. Lex stroked her back and told her she was an attractive girl and that she deserved to be loved. Dr. Lex prescribed her Valium and told Kathy to take it 10 minutes before their next session. So she did. And not long after stepping into his office, she started to feel the drugs kick in. I started
7: to fall forward and he casually, I remember, walked over and um, grabbed me before I hit the floor. And I think he thought that I was completely out of it, that I wasn't.
1: As she lost consciousness, Kathy says Leeks assaulted her.
7: He was kissing my neck and and stroking my hair and he had his hand down my dress.
1: And while he was doing this, he talked to her about the kids at Lake Ellis.
7: He was saying that he had had this terrible time in New Zealand and that he had been persecuted over there. And I'm pretty sure he thought he was talking to somebody who was asleep and I was listening. And he started to say how he had been hounded and hounded because he was the only one who knew how to use the discipline and ECT was the only way to control them.
1: While there was a part of Kathy that knew this wasn't right, Lex convinced her to come back again. Again, she was sedated by Valium and he assaulted her, Kathy became suicidal. Eventually, Cathy reported leaks to the Medical Board of Victoria. I don't
7: think they believed me. I, they threw away words that it wasn't uncommon for a patient to be attracted to their therapist, that sort of stuff. So I just realised I was going to go absolutely nowhere. I did report it to the police at the time and they didn't take any action either, not anything.
1: Both the Medical Board and the police declined to take further action. In 2002, over 20 years later, Kathy was reading the Age newspaper. An article jumped out at her about a shock doc called Selwyn Leakes.
7: And it said shock doc at it again. He was still practising, and when I realised that he could still be hurting children, I decided to go to a law firm and take out a civil
1: case. In 2004, Cathy filed a civil suit against Dr Selwyn Leakes for sexual assault. If you took the option of skipping episode four, you'll have missed one other story that's important here. But that's OK, we can fill you in. Her name is Sharon Collis, and she was sent to Lake Ellis at the age of 14, where she experienced something similar to Kathy. It started with Dr Leakes giving her what he and the nurses called a truth serum.
0: The nurses took me down to a side room in our villa, and um, they tied me onto the bed. And they went out, and Dr Leek's come in and um, gave me an injection in my arm. And I woke up with my clothes and that disarrayed. I just asked what the fuck you were doing, <laughs> and he put me back to sleep. That happened a few times out there. That I'd wake up and um, know that he'd done something to me, just the way I felt. I was tender, I was sore, um, and had a discharge. I remember telling one of the nurses that he was doing something to me and she didn't believe me, told me that I was lying.
1: Sharon was convinced that Lex was raping her. Nothing else made sense. She told her mother, her friend, she later told a boyfriend, but she had no proof. Sharon went on to have six kids of her own, and struggled with a string of abusive relationships, as well as substance addiction. In 1999, Sharon joined the first wave of survivors for the class-action lawsuit against the government. Her statement included allegations of rape. In 2002, she told the police, but they said there wasn't enough evidence to press charges against legs. Over in Australia, Cathy didn't go to court until 2006. And that is when Sharon first heard Kathy's story.
0: And what she said was similar to what had happened to me. So, you know, I got validation. You know, OK, I, it did happen to me. I didn't imagine it. He did the same things to her.
1: Despite being painted by some Australian media as a disturbed psychiatric patient, Kathy won her case. The courts ordered Selwyn Legs to pay $55,000 in reparations, but Legs declared bankruptcy and never paid up. Legs was actually pretty good at slipping the noose like this, and he was about to get another chance at it. While the medical practitioners board of Victoria, declined to take action on Kathy's complaint, they did kick off another investigation into Leakes' practice in response to a complaint by Kevin. You remember Kevin, the ex-patient who'd gone to confront Leakes and ended up medicated by him. But then the day before the Victoria hearing, Salwin Leakes, aged 77, announced his retirement and promised to stop his medical practice. And they go, well, now the community's protected from this man, he's never going to practice again.
8: Investigation's over.
1: This is Mike Ferris again from CCHR, and he's right. Boom, closed. The investigation didn't go any further.
8: To us, it sends a loud and clear message to other practitioners that if you really have been up to some bad shit, you can always just resign. And you won't get done for it. (laughs) I
2: think with sour, and he's run a lot, he won't stop running by the sounds of it.
1: Here's Kevin Banks again.
2: But um, he's got to face up to what he's done, be accountable to what he's done.
1: The character of Dr. Leakes is a shadowy one. There are people like Professor John Weary who see him as a bad diagnostician who harmed his patients out of ignorance more than anything else. Others believe he was a sadist who got off on inflicting pain on frightened, vulnerable children. The accounts of Kathy Alexander and Sharon Collis clearly depict a rapist. I'll tell you what's even more out there about uh, Dr Selwyn Leakes. This is Rangi Whitcliffe, one of our two little boys from the beginning. Is that he actually brought his own children with him, yep, to the villa.
8: They used to be sitting out in his um, Volkswagen van while he was in there going
1: to DCT. And Tyrone Marks, rang his mate, the scrapper.
9: And I'd see him with his kids. Yeah. And I'd, I'd always watch him and i think, yeah, <laughs> your kids, you're a happy family, so you have no fucking empathy or, or, or anything for us as kids. Would you fucking do that to your own kids? That's what I used to think in my head. People go into psychiatry
3: thinking that they're going to solve problems.
1: This is Anna Natush again, the teacher who had helped Hakehalo. She's a forgiving kind of person.
3: They go in because they want to help, and that's the saddest thing when you see people who who want to help. And I think Leeks was one of them who wanted to help. I really do. There was something... There was something there. The children... They can't see anything, but that's... They were involved, but I don't think he was completely bad. I think Elex had occupational insanity, to be honest. I really do.
1: Do you think he believed his methods were helping?
3: He was caught up with the failure. They're weak people. They can't cope with failure, and then it becomes a vendetta, you know, to prove that he's right because he can't face that what he's done is wrong. And it takes a lot of courage to say, well, everything I've done and everything I've thought, I've failed. But I'll turn it to good and I'll I'll apologise. I'll move forward into the future and I will help to reconstruct a, a better system. And that's what I would like to see leaks do.
1: Occupational insanity isn't a proper diagnosis. But we have heard stories from staff which show how working at a place like Lake Alice could make you feel like you were losing it. Like this one from psych nurse Brian Stab.
6: The one time I protested about the use of beta, was when well, it was given to a, a kid I remember really well. He was 14 or 15. Um, broken home living with his grandparents r- running away um, that the background and he was in the unit for a couple of weeks and I got to know him um, I think he'd seen a psychiatrist once in that time um, and then the next thing I see Dr Lee's come and prescribe ECT and basically it was a uh, and a, a quite horrible, traumatic process. We had to drag the kids up the stairs to a bed, and it was it was not pleasant at all. Well, th- at the end of it, I was I was left bloody half giggling, half wetting myself. Oh, not being able to cope at all with what we were expected to do it was a pretty horrible experience. Uh, particularly because I got to know the kid real well, you know. And I I knew that he hadn't been seen, and he certainly wasn't depressed.
1: Brian tried to raise concerns about this, but he was told not to question the decisions of psychiatrists.
6: I think that he, he so lost sight of his own sadism, couldn't recognise it, and it built up and built up, um, and he, he got out of control and there was no supervision. There were so many things wrong with that it's not, you know, it's... There was issues of consent, um, and most of the kids that were... would be getting this would be wards of the state, so they didn't have any advocate or anyone, you know, looking after their rights. It um, became a brutal place at times. Yeah, I think that what he did was criminal.
1: Because he's always managed to slip the noose, the closest that Dr Leeks has come to being held accountable is by the media. But he hasn't done many interviews over the years. Only one officially, in 1976. The rest have been ambushes. A lot of those ambushes were because of Kevin Banks, in 1999, Kevin called the Melbourne newspaper The Age and they put their senior investigator on the case. He flew to New Zealand and confirmed everything Kevin had told him about Legs, which led to a major article. There were more stories off the back of that one. Then in 2001, New Zealand's TV3 channel got Kevin to go to Legs' offices and ask some questions with a hidden camera in his shirt. It was quite nervous,
2: um... It comes out in my voice, I heard my playback on that video and it was quite apparent, I was very nervous of him and he's just so calm about everything.
1: Actually, Lex looks a little nervous himself. He's still softly spoken and measured in his words but he's got one arm over his chest and another hand on his chin. He looks defensive. Kevin confronted him about the incident where Dr. Lex told him and some other boys to shock Nick, their abuser, who was also a child. This is the actual audio of that conversation between Kevin and Dr Leakes.
2: What happened then? I stopped you because you went to turn it as far as you could. You this went as far as I said. You took it up to the t- top thing, which is still below the level of pain, mm. but it's, uh, it was a fairly intensive Stimulance. Strong pain, yeah. No, it's not strong pain. Uh, I've had it before for smoking cigarettes, and it really hurt me. You know, knocked the hell out of me. pain. It's uncensored.
1: It's hard to hear, but Lex is saying that he actually stopped Kevin from turning the shocks up too high. And anyway, the shocks weren't actually painful. I know a few kids who'd disagree with that. In the footage that does exist... Leakes never gets aggressive around reporters. He almost looks bored, and even slightly amused by it all, as if we've all been sucked in by the survivors. As Anna Natush pointed out, Leakes was someone who would not admit to wrongdoing or mistakes. The most significant interview that Leakes has ever given wasn't really an interview. TVNZ reporter Ian Sinclair and his producer were trying to convince him to come on their show, but they had a hidden camera and to their surprise, they were invited in by Dr. Leeks when they knocked at his door. This was in 2007, when Leeks was nearly 80. We can't use that audio, but I've heard it. Dr. Leeks tells Sinclair, what was seen as treatment then may not be seen as treatment now. And then Dr. Leeks says that his lawyers have advised him not to talk to journalists because he doesn't come across very favourably on camera. So they never got an official interview. And as Sinclair was leaving after nearly an hour together, Legs told him that some of the children at Lake Alice had big imaginations and that the other common factor was that they had all spoken to CCHR, the Scientologists, implying that the stories had been planted there by them. Dr. Salwyn Legs is actually still alive. Well, as of October 2021 anyway. He's 92 years old and still living in Australia. We contacted him via his lawyer, but we've received no reply. Lake Ellis has come to occupy a strange place in New Zealand's collective memory. Some people have never heard of it. Others have a vague idea what happened. Hakehalo's story was turned into a macabre dance show by Whanganui High School a few years ago. And there's no shortage of amateur detectives collecting its stories. There's the one about how when it was shut down in 1999... The local junkies came in and cleaned out the drug cabinets, which were left full. Or there's the time in 2006 when the army used the place as a training camp and they found medical files strewn all over the place. There's also the rumours, like the one about a politician's intellectually disabled sister who was there in the 70s. Some people believe she was buried there in an unmarked grave. Psychics have reported feeling spirits roaming around the place. And then, there's the story about the CIA's MKUltra program. MKUltra was a top-secret CIA project involving hundreds of covert experiments in the 1950s and 60s. The experiments were done through 89 institutions around North America on people who hadn't even consented. The experiments used LSD and other drugs for the purposes of mind control, information gathering... In psychological torture. The most notorious of these experiments took place at McGill University in Canada under a doctor named Ewan Cameron.
4: Well, you're speaking to somebody who was part of the deep sleep clinic at McGill University in Montreal.
1: This is Professor John Weary again. He studied at McGill in the early 1960s while this was happening. In deep sleep therapy, patients were kept unconscious with the use of drugs, for days or even weeks at a time. It was first tried at the turn of the 19th century, but then it was popularised in the 1920s and then picked up and promoted by psychiatrists in the 1950s and 60s, including by Ewan Cameron at McGill.
4: It was a noble experiment, but um, it required far more development to see whether it had any role. But the notion itself isn't silly.
1: Well, that's debatable. It was never proved to work. Nevertheless, the ideas that sprung up in places like McGill University were exported throughout the Western world. Deep sleep therapy was used in Australia at a hospital named Chelmsford in the early 1960s to late 70s. It was a disaster. At least 24 people died during the treatment, and two others suffered brain damage. A further 19 people who underwent the treatment went on to commit suicide in the year following. The doctor in charge of Chelmsford, Harry Bailey, tried to cover it up by altering death certificates. Half of those who died were under the age of 40, and one of them was a 14-year-old boy. So, back to Lake Ellis. Remember in episode 2, when 11-year-old Tyrone woke up groggy in a ward full of sleeping people, with Leeks going around with his machine, shocking people.
9: Lying there and watching a whole ward full of people, you know, lying there and and individually, Leeks and his crew going from bed to bed. But what I didn't realize is that, until I've read these notes, that that was continuous over a number of days and it, it definitely shows that they were experimenting on me.
1: We already know that deep sleep therapy was happening in New Zealand, at Cherry Farm in Dunedin, as well as a number of other institutions throughout the country. But now it seems obvious that it was also being carried out by Dr Selwyn Leeks at Lake Alice on children. And in Tyrone's case, on a child who was still recovering from the serious injuries of being run over by a car
9: I'm ending up in this place. Uh, wounds not 100% healed. If anything had happened to me, then they would have um, contributed that to my injuries before I got there, because the amount of um, drugs and, and stuff that they were giving me alone could have could have caused me to to have a heart attack or die, let alone the electrocution so they were taking a risk with my life.
1: It's easy to look into the past and judge what people were doing by today's standards. Many of the psychological experiments that happened in the past would never happen now, like Stanley Milgram's famous experiments in 1961, where participants gave shocks to strangers under the orders of an authority figure and the Stanford Prison Experiments where people were sent into a mock prison and assigned roles as either guards or prisoners. That one had to be called off after six days when guards became abusive. We've talked about psychiatry around this time being like the Wild West, but was it a lawless place of unfettered violence ruled by cowboy psychiatrists? Or was it a land of opportunity and new frontiers? Maybe it was both. How you view the picture depends on your values, on whether you see the pursuit of knowledge as worth the cost of human lives. The Chelmsford doctor Harry Bailey committed suicide before he had to face a court. Ewan Cameron died in a mountaineering accident well before his experiments became public knowledge. And Dr. Selwyn Leakes...
8: He was allowed to do whatever he wanted to do. He was somehow given some kind of license to do what he was doing.
1: When you're on a quest for justice and you've been failed by every institution in your home country, it can feel like you're out of options. Except there's this inconvenient thing called international law. When you take a case to the United Nations, you
8: don't just take a case to the United Nations. I mean, it's it's not just something you do every day. Um, (laughs) This is Mike Ferris again from CCHR. You have to show that you've exhausted all the remedies in the country of whatever it is
1: that you're alleging. So we're alleging torture. It wasn't actually Mike involved at this time, but a guy called Steve Green, the previous head of CCHR. And he was teamed up with the skipper, Paul Zenfeld.
4: So I quit my job, sold my vehicle for eight hundred dollars so I had a bit of pocket money, and we were, and, and um, his wife, done all the bookings, the cheap ones, not New New Zealand and Qantas. And, um, yeah, it was scared, but it was an adventure. Anyway, we had a ball over there. I said, why are you looking after us so good? Because um, it's very hard we don't often get victims that are living.
1: We've seen a bit of footage of this trip. Paul's standing outside the building in the hustle and bustle of Geneva with his suit and shades on, and a big, gappy grin.
4: (laughs) Hey, my name is P. Z. Burns Infield, and we just come out of the UN Committee for Torture, and it was a success. Hasn't finished
1: yet. After they'd made their submission, they flew home, and then all they could do was wait. The first person to hear back from the UN was Victor Boyd, the Scientologist we met at the start of this episode with his garage full of documents.
5: Early one morning, we're out walking the dog, my wife and I, and I look on my phone and the decision's there, and I'm going, I can't look at it yet because it might be a no and I want to be prepared mentally for it.
1: But Victor's wife decided she couldn't wait any longer and she made him open the 15-page report from the UN. He skipped straight to the end. Right away, he called Paul. So I was out fishing, my phone rang. Paul,
4: it's Victor. Oh, G'day, how are you? I've got some news for you. We won our case. What? No, you didn't. What are you talking about? The UN
1: decision, we won our case. Really? I said, well, we better let everyone else know. The UN decision found that New Zealand was in breach of the Convention Against Torture. So then the, the United Nations, they urged the New Zealand
8: government to take these measures, which is to, again, an impartial investigation with a view to um, bringing the perpetrators to justice. And then coming back to the subject of redress, to look at that again, in light of that investigation. And then thirdly, to make the decision widely known. And that was the three things that they asked our government to do. Our government then started a police investigation, which is due to be finalised shortly. And then The the Royal Commission thing.
1: Ah yes, the Royal Commission thing. For years, survivors of state abuse, those who'd been through the welfare homes like Hokio and Kohitere, had been calling for an official public inquiry into what happened and the effects on their lives and society at large. In 2018, the government finally responded and set up a Royal Commission of Inquiry to look into abuse and care in state and faith-based institutions. And in 2019, the inquiry kicked off. The Commission's task is huge, trying to establish the truth of what happened in so many different institutions over a period of 50 years, from 1950 to 2000. It's about so much more than Lake Ellis, although Lake Ellis is a high priority for the Commission. So in June 2021, The survivors of Lake Ellis made their way to Auckland, from all around Aotearoa, reuniting in pubs and hotel rooms, before stepping into a room full of lawyers, judges, support people, members of the public and the press, to finally have their voices heard. And we were there with them.
3: This is a story that the nation must hear in all its horror.
1: Coming up in the final episode of The Lake... The truth
4: has to come out, is coming out. And we will have our time, and it'll be our time, not theirs, our time.
7: They now have an obligation, the Commission, to make this right.
6: Madam Chair, here we are after 45 years. There is still no truth, and there is still no justice.
7: Dr. Lex is 92
2: years old. I know exactly what game they're playing, but it's the same game they've been playing for 40-odd years. I want
9: blood out of this. Whoa, that's been, that's been hidden.
1: The Lake was researched and hosted by me, Aaron Smale. It was produced, edited and scripted by Kirsten Johnston and Melody Thomas at Popsock Media. Tyrone Marks helped support survivors during our interviews. Ben Lemmy wrote music for the series and recorded the narration. Mark Chesterman did sound design and the final mix. At Stuff, our script advisors were Eugene Bingham and Adam Dudding and the commissioning editors were Carol Hirschfeld and Patrick Crudson. This podcast was made with the support of New Zealand On Air.